is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Brian Ping, in for Mike Simpson. And I'm Rob Archer, in for Charles Feldman. The cyber hackers who broke into the L.A. School District computer system made good on their promise and their threat by releasing some stolen data. The district has responded by setting up a hotline for people to call if they think they have been impacted. We go in-depth in what you need to know to protect yourself. Latest poll shows the L.A.'s mayor race between Karen Bass and Rick Caruso getting a lot closer, and we are a little over a month away from the election. Kim Kardashian has to pay more than $1 million for not being completely honest about why she liked a certain cryptocurrency so much. A big trial regarding the January 6th insurrection is now started. We go in-depth into what prosecutors are alleging against the leader of a big extremist group and how that could impact other defendants. The Supreme Court, meanwhile, is back at work. We get a look into the big cases the justices will decide. The movie Bros had everything going for it, it seemed. Great reviews, a big ad campaign, but moviegoers still didn't care we look into what went wrong. And if you think you and those around you have changed recently, maybe you have. A new study dives into personality changes and the pandemic. I can't wait for that one. Uh, We're going to start with L.A. School District uh, hacking. Pete Nicoletti is a cybersecurity expert. He's with uh, Checkpoint Software Technologies. And I think we have touched on this in our coverage before, but, you know, maybe the hackers didn't get a lot of information. We don't know exactly how much, but just a little bit of information could be dangerous because they can use something they found out about you to craft a phishing message that might suck you in and trick you into giving up more information. And that's the way that usually works. Is that right? That's correct. This is actually a pretty bad case, worst case scenario for the for the district. Uh, checkpoint researchers have located that information that has been purloined from the district. It consists of 248,000 files and it's everything. It's a treasure trove of information. It's passports, it's power bills, it's personal information. This is stage two of encryption blackmail. Their first pass at, uh, you know, ransomware was thwarted by them not paying. And I totally agree with that. And security researchers and security professionals always recommend against paying the criminals because they're just getting better. And they're using their money to hack us better with better tools and smarter people and 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 doing more of it. So this stage two, where they're threatening to release the information, personally, I totally agree with the the the, uh, the administration not negotiating. Now, there's going to be a lot of, as you pointed out, there's a lot of uh, repercussions about this. So the school district has set up a hotline that you can call. I mean, what else can they do and what else can you do if you're potentially impacted by this? I'm supposing just go change all your passwords, but really what else can you do at this point? Yeah, it's it's not good for for the people whose data has been exposed. Uh the credit monitoring services, you know, the typical response and that's somewhat helpful. But the all the, the users of, you know, all the students and administration, you know, assume that their data is gone because it is gone. It's, it's out there. We've seen it. Um, and it's for sale. And it's going to be leveraged by, by, by attackers to do exactly what you said, craft especially targeted phishing messages. They're going to name names, you know. You know, they're going to say your daughter's traveling here and, and that's exactly what's going to be happening. Send money, you know, emergency money. There's hundreds of scenarios that these crafty hackers are doing. So here's the thing. you got to have your spider senses tingling. 
you have to, as you mentioned, change your passwords. Every single website that you interface with should have a unique password. Assume that that website is going to be corrupt, you know, compromised and that your name and password combination is going to be stolen. So you have to have a unique password. Use a password manager. Set up two-factor authentication for any of your critical relationships, your bank, your Amazon, anything you buy things from. Name and password is not good enough anymore. And we've even seen with the Uber hack that name and password and two-factor authentication is not enough because that's how Microsoft and Uber was recently hacked with, you know, two-factor authentication fatigue where the social engineering hackers uh, even bypassed that by just bugging the people too much. And they said, okay, let them in. And and now, now we have another couple companies hacked. So those are a couple of ideas. All right. You may not know the specifics of LAUSD's computer system, but uh, in general, would you say that uh, school system computer networks are just waiting to get hacked or or have they done everything they can to protect themselves from this uh, about the, the physical security methods? Well, you know, it's the old adage. You just have to be faster than the last guy when the tiger's chasing you. And schools are traditionally not funding uh, their cybersecurity efforts as much as, say, businesses or, you know, banks and, and other companies that are being hacked. But what's happening is they're being targeted. We're seeing a 37% increase in attacks just on the educational sector uh, over the last couple months. They typically do have lower budgets. They have, I hate to say it, but not, perhaps not as well-paid staff as the commercial enterprises. You know, this is what we refer to in the business as a budgetary creation event. And there's some CISO somewhere in that in that system saying the worst words that a CISO can say is I told you so. Everybody's updating resumes. And the, <laughs> the worst part or the funniest, uh, there's a couple of ironic things about this. You know, we're finding the employees security letters that they had to sign to say we're going to protect the, the district's information. And uh, that's that's just the worst. That's the worst kind of hack to see all that stuff out there on the dark web. All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Pete Nicoletti, cybersecurity expert. He's with Checkpoint Software Technologies. Coming up, the biggest trial coming out of the January 6th insurrection is now started. And we look at why the movie Bros did so poorly across the country at the box office, despite the great reviews and heavy marketing. And right now, though, a new poll from uh, UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies finds that Rick Caruso is catching up to Karen Bass in the L.A. mayor's race. Bass leads 34 to 31 among all registered voters. That's down from the 12-point Bass lead back in August. Rafe Sonnenshine's executive director of the Pat Brown Institute for Public Affairs at Cal State LA. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, uh, first of all, uh, before we dig into the numbers, isn't part of this just to polls tighten the closer you get to an election in almost every election, isn't that right? Well, they tighten and the underdog usually gains ground. Uh, They've got the most ground to make up. And in this case, the underdog, Rick Caruso, has a phenomenally well-funded and well-organized campaign, both on the air and on the ground. Uh, which hit heavily in the primary and is about to hit again. So he really has one good run to make on this. Um, and he's got a lot, he's got all the resources and the TV ads and the people going door to door to at least have him make a run at it. I would remind you, though, that among likely voters, Bass is still very well ahead in the same poll by 15 points. 
And generally speaking, at this stage, pollsters like to really focus on the likely voters rather than all registered voters, many of whom will not turn out. Now, what do you think is the discrepancy here between the registered and the likely? Because, you know, when you go around and, and poll those who say they're likely to vote, are they more motivated to actually get out of the polls and vote for the topics that perhaps Bass is hitting on better than Caruso? Yeah, it's really striking. I, I, you rarely see this big a discrepancy between the two. And it means that Caruso, with a great campaign apparatus that he has, has to not only win people over, but get them to the polls when they're not inclined to vote. So he has kind of a double task there. The advantage for Bass is that she's still very strong among likely voters who are Democrats. And in this poll, she's leading by almost 40 points. And that is the single largest base right now in Los Angeles politics. So He's got his work cut out for him, but it's oddly enough, it's early. You know, a lot happens in the last four or five weeks. So what is it? Is it early or it's late? I don't know. But uh, <laughs> there is time for things to happen. But he, he really has to climb that mountain and not just get the unattached voters, but he has to get people who are basically committed to Bass to move off that position. All right. So as the uh, polls get tighter, uh, at least uh, in that one poll, uh, and he's going to capitalize on that as much as he can, saying, hey, I've got momentum Uh, with that getting closer and with the race getting tighter. Can we expect more fireworks in their big debate that's going to be happening Thursday at 5 p.m. here on KNX? Well, really, for both sides, fireworks seem indicated. For one thing, the worst thing you can do if you're in the lead is sit on a lead. And in that sense, it's a lot like sports. I mean, you have to be on the on the challenge to the challenger. And clearly Caruso um, really has to shake the chemistry of the race and take advantage of some good news in this poll. I mean, it's, it's more good news than you might expect in a quiet summer. I think they're going to uh, really go after each other's weaknesses as much as trying to demonstrate their strengths. Do you think Caruso's getting traction from the Scientology ads tying Bass uh, to Scientology and how that might not, you know, drive well with Democratic voters? I mean, we had you on a few days ago and you said he should he should focus on the core issues like, you know, crime and homelessness and not get into this other noise. But do you think it's working for him? Well, it's hard to say. I think what he's trying to do is he threw a bit of a brushback pitch, not to overdo the sports metaphors, which, you know, I try not to do as many of those. But it basically was saying, I'm here. Here's something to show that could raise some doubt about you. But if, if you know, obviously they're not going to talk about Scientology the rest of the way. They're going to talk about homeless, homelessness, crime, uh, corruption at City Hall. She's going to talk about abortion and Roe versus Wade, about Donald Trump and about uh, the Democratic Party, what they hope is going to be a surge for them in the midterm. So all this is going to be the main stuff. All right. Very quickly before we uh, go is, uh, you know, a. Uh, uh, Tightening the lead, it's probably good for Karen Bass, too, because it's going to motivate even more Democrats and her supporters to come out and support her. Uh, So she probably doesn't want to make too much of the likely voter poll that shows her with a double-digit lead, right? Because that that might lead to uh, apathy. Yeah, actually, that's a great point, which is that both candidates have have an interest in everybody really seeing that. And the truth is, these things can go anywhere. And in that sense, it will kind of shake some complacency in in her base and give some hope to the Caruso organization and and their plan. So I think it can only enliven things going forward. All right. Thank you so much, Rafe uh, Sonnenshine. Joining us, he's the executive director of the Pat Brown Institute for Public Affairs at Cal State L.A.
Kim Kardashian has been fined more than one and a quarter million dollars by the Securities and Exchange Commission to settle allegations that she promoted a cryptocurrency without disclosing she was paid for it. Now, that raises legal and ethical issues, especially as she has so many followers who may think she was trying to help them. Joshua Ritter is a criminal defense attorney and former L.A. County prosecutor. Joshua, thanks for joining us. Now, I want to say that this isn't the first time that uh, Kim may have pushed a product to all her followers uh, and gotten paid for it. But what makes it so different this time? Is it the fact that it's something that's uh, you know so sensitive like cryptocurrency? Uh, or what's the deal here? Well, it's the fact that she didn't disclose that she was getting paid for it, especially when you're dealing like with an investment as ri- risky as cryptocurrency. Um, and that she has such influence over millions of followers, uh, the SEC is concerned by somebody pushing this type of product without letting people know that it was a paid endorsement. This is this would be the first time she has she's never done anything like that before, to what we know, or did this just kind of raise some red flags? I, I think we're unaware if this is uh, the first time. It certainly sounds like it's the first time dealing with cryptocurrency, and it and it's you know more than a slap on the wrist by the SEC. They're not referring this over to the Department of Justice at this time for any kind of criminal investigation, but anything north of a million dollars is seen as a pretty serious reprimand by the SEC. Now, if Brian or I were fined a million dollars for something, that's that's big news because we would be essentially <laughs> done at that point. But for Kim Kardashian, isn't that kind of a slap on the wrist? Yeah, when you're worth over a billion dollars, it's hard to say that that's going to cause much of a dent. But at the same time, you know, the SEC is supposed to kind of take each case, not based upon the the net value of the person involved, but kind of the conduct involved. And again, you know, they saw this as being more than just some sort of technical error, but as a serious grievance. So she couldn't just say, uh, Kim, that, that, look, I'm being paid for this, but look, you've trusted the products that I've, uh, you know, told you about for years and years now, why would this be any different? I mean, why why couldn't she just simply say, I'm being paid for this, but so what? I think she could say that she's being paid for it, and I think that's what the SEC took uh, issue with, was the fact that she didn't disclose that she was being paid for it. And again, you're dealing with you know, really risky uh, investments. In fact, the, the to compound issues for, for Ms. Kardashian, the underlying um, cryptocurrency that she was promoting uh, looks like itself may have been involved in some sort of pump and dump scheme. So there there might be further kind of um, allegations coming from the SEC or maybe DOJ after this. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, what if what if she does this again and says, oh, I, I forgot. I was thinking about it. I forgot to say I'm being paid to do this. If it's a similar case, would the SEC uh, jack up the fines even more? They would jack up the fines even more, uh, and they might even refer things over to the Department of Justice for criminal investigation. But, you know, when you're dealing with someone who's worth over a billion dollars, I, I doubt the few hundred thousand bucks that she made on promoting this is worth all of the trouble. And I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see her getting into this type of uh, 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 endeavor again in the future. All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Joshua Ritter, criminal defense attorney and former L.A. County prosecutor. And just as a note, Brian, if you're going to talk about a cryptocurrency, make sure you reveal that you were paid because, you know, you don't want to get fined a million dollars. Yeah, if I get fined, like you said, if you get fined a million dollars, that's I'll probably be you're going to be crashing (laughs) up some extra jobs other than. Yeah. Other than that. So I'm a little tired. 
You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Brian Ping in for Mike Simpson. I am Rob Archer in for Charles Feldman. The biggest trial coming out of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol has started. The founder of the extremist group The Oath Keepers and four of his associates are charged with seditious conspiracy. And prosecutors say they plan for an armed rebellion to stop Joe Biden from officially winning the presidential election and being declared the next president. The defense, though, says they weren't involved with any violence during the riot. David Katz is a former federal prosecutor and criminal defense attorney. Thank you so much for joining us. Part of the defense here I hear, at least for some of these people, are that, uh, you know, they felt that uh, that President Trump was issuing them or was about to issue them official orders to do what they were going to do and that they had to follow them because it was the president ordering to them to do so. I think that defense will be proven very insubstantial. It won't work. Uh, There are several problems with that, especially when it gets to Rhodes, who's a Yale Law-educated leader of these Oath Keepers. Uh, He himself said, they have him on tape, saying that that story was just legal cover. That's a terrible look when you're a criminal defendant, that you put on a defense, and yet you said yourself that uh, it's just a cover. On top of that, he said some other things that were devastating. He said two days after the election that uh, Biden succeeding Trump was going to cause a civil war. When you're contemplating a civil war two days after the election, that's not good either. And then he's got this devastating comment, which was recorded uh, four days after the insurrection on January 10th. He said, my only regret is that we didn't bring rifles. My only regret is that they didn't bring rifles into the Capitol or we could have settled it right then and there. So it was very clear that while he was acting like a general and not going in himself, he was standing outside next to his counsel, who's also been indicted, although not for seditious conspiracy, but for other federal crimes. He was standing out there being the general, giving orders. He had weapons stashed right across the river. He says, well, I was obeying the law because my weapons weren't in D.C. But when you take the totality of this, stashing them right across the river, in uh, Virginia, so he'd be right by the highway that leads to the Capitol, right across the river, or ferrying them in. I think what he's looking for is a pardon. He's hoping Trump will win in 2024, and he'll get a pardon. So don't expect him or I think his top Confederates to roll on Stone or to roll on Trump, because they're hoping that this parlays itself into a pardon one day, because I think their chance with the jury is about nil. So the fighting words matter, even if no shots are fired or there's you know anything rising to that level. For him to say things like that and say civil war and considering the influence he's got, you know, that, that, that matters a lot, not just you know in the real world, but also in a court. Well, it matters a lot because he also summons his followers um, into Washington to be there on January 6th. And he sent them encrypted messages. He had face-to-face meetings. All that looked like he was trying to not make a record because he knew the record would be devastating to his criminal prospects. He'd be indicted and convicted one day, so he encrypted the messages. And then, of course, the federal authorities undid him by unencrypting the messages. On top of that, they have three or four informants, uh, people who were inside, not undercover agents, but people who were members who got really freaked out that this was the level of violence that Rhodes and his top people were heading toward. And so they actually started cooperating. And uh, on top of that, they have uh, undercover tapes, this quick reaction force. Um, Apparently, he had some communications. They're trying to get to the bottom of it, of who his communications were with someone inside the White House. Of course, people are are dying to know that. But I think 
they don't really have much luck with that insurrection defense because, number one, Trump did not call the Insurrection Act into effect, and yet his followers went in anyway. He said, well, we're all standing out in front of the Capitol. We're waiting for the Insurrection Act orders to come from Trump. When they didn't, all of my followers got really excited and ran in there. Uh, I wish they hadn't have done that. But he doesn't sound like that when he says four days later on a tape recording, I wish we'd have brought in rifles. We could have ended it right then and there if we'd have had rifles. And they were also talking, one of his other Confederates who's on trial, about Pelosi and Pelosi's head. All of this is going to lead to them being convicted, in my opinion. And what do you make of the former president uh, at a recent rally is saying that uh, he's going to look at pardons very seriously for all of these people? That might have the effect of, as you uh, mentioned before, uh, they're not going to testify against anybody else. And that might open up Mr. Trump to some charges of obstruction, wouldn't it? Well, you know, there are so many uh, charges that are pending. There's the case down in Mar-a-Lago with the search of the classified records that he shouldn't have taken or kept. There's the fact that he didn't tamp down the January 6th insurrection. Once it started, he apparently lied to a news reporter and said, no, no, he wasn't watching TV. He said that on tape, Trump did, and now they have the proof that he was watching TV and he was actually happy about what happened or might happen to uh, Pence, that Pence might be hanged. After all, he deserves it, he supposedly said while watching TV. So Trump has a lot more trouble than just obstructing justice with regard to this matter. He's also got the case in state court in Georgia. So I think that actually his legal prospects, you know, they call him the Teflon Don. But remember the famous Teflon Don? He ended up going to prison for a long time with the nickname Teflon Don. So I think we have to wait and see. But I think Trump has really gotten himself in a lot of trouble. He thinks he can go right up to the line. But I think in these instances, he's crossed the line and the prosecutors can prove it. All right, there you go. David Katz, former federal prosecutor and criminal defense attorney. The uh, Supreme Court has started a brand new term. This comes after the last one ended with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That was pretty big. The Supreme Court's reputation has taken a big hit after that decision. So where do they go from here? Well, there are more big cases for justices to hear and decide on that deal with hot-button issues like affirmative action, voting rights, LGBTQ discrimination, and elections. With us to explain is Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor of Law at UC Irvine and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. Now, Michelle, as we know, we usually don't get uh, results or find out what the justices are thinking until, you know, probably about nine months from now, around the end of the term in June. But, you know, there are some cases here that uh, you know, could make plenty of headlines as they do make their way through the system and as they are first argued. That's absolutely right. And we're starting a term that is momentous in and of itself with Justice Katanti Brown Jackson on the court, the first black woman to serve on the court in the court's over 233 year history. But you are absolutely right. These are hot button cases that are going to keep us all uh, glued to our seats or glued to the news to learn more affirmative action. Uh, We have a case, Students for Fair Admissions versus the President and Fellows of Harvard. There's another version of that case coming from that same group against North Carolina. What's interesting about this set of cases is that we see a repeat. Uh, The Supreme Court had already um, said that affirmative action is permissible in a case, Grutter, Um, But you see a kind of repeat to try to chip away, much in the way in which Dobbs did exactly that. There was Roe v. Wade, there was Planned Parenthood v. Casey, but you still have states and now organizations trying to chip away at prior Supreme Court precedent. Yeah, you know, I think back when, at least to me, when there was a 5-4 split on the court, 
uh, that that because one justice might swing away, you don't expect there was a there felt like there was a little bit more moderation in the opinions and the courses uh, uh, cases they would decide. But now with a six to three split, it seems like there's no more need for moderation. We don't care if we lose one of the conservative justices because we still have enough to force our way through. Is that accurate? Is that what's really going on with this court? Well, that is certainly the concern that people have. The Supreme Court has the lowest approval rating since approval ratings have been taken of the Supreme Court. There are people who believe that the court, which already seemed elite um, and already governed around just a small select set of law schools, they all have either graduated from Harvard or Yale with the exception of Amy Coney Barrett, that alone made them seem kind of off from the average American's life. But now you are absolutely right. Some people fear that the cases are already a done deal. And I'll give you an example that points exactly to what you were talking about. Roe v. Wade itself was upheld by a case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and that was two Republican-appointed justices on the court who supported Roe v. Wade um, through Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Even the affirmative action case, Grutter, which we're living under now, which has allowed for affirmative action to exist, was pushed over the line by Justice O'Connor. So this way in which people believe that the court was really deliberating and not just simply fixed to political parties is now giving way. Well, they look at the the justices do at these approval ratings that are historically low, and you have to consider that Many of these justices, maybe a majority, are like, well, you know, what are they going to do? I, we have these jobs for life as, uh, you know, we're protected or as long as we want. And so, like you said, we're going to have a lot of 6 threes decisions regardless. And this is one thing where public opinion really is not going to sway uh, like they can uh, Congress or the presidency. Well, this is the concern. And I do think that Chief Justice John Roberts has been fighting against that, although recently he seems to have claimed he has claimed that um, the court is not experiencing this kind of backlash or that it's undeserved, which is a bit strange, especially given that Justice Roberts was pushed during the Trump administration by federal judges to come forward and say that there's no such thing as Trump judges as Obama judges, as Bush-era judges. I mean, he actually had to make that statement because there were lower court federal judges that believed that the public was losing confidence in the federal court. And so recently, Justice Elena Kagan at Northwestern Law School, you know, acknowledged that that the public sentiment, which is now um, a bit wary of the court, may be deserved when the public believes that the court is just simply leaning into politics. That all said, I think that the Chief Justice does care about the rule of law and is trying as much as possible to steer the court. Behind the scenes, though, I think that there's word that it's just a a complete disarray, unlike what has been seen in a generation or two of the Supreme Court. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is John Roberts really in charge anymore? That's a really good question. I will say that in the 2019-2020 term, which was the last term in which Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was alive, he actually sided with the liberals in an abortion case. The case hasn't gotten much attention, but I will tell you that behind the scenes, he actually got death threats. There were prominent Republicans who said that he had forgotten the political reasons why he was put on the court. Of course, justices are not put on the court for political reasons. Uh, And there was a big push for John Roberts to step down. And that gives you some sense about the landscape 
um, that exist behind the court, internal to the court, but also external to the court in terms of pressures that the Chief Justice is experiencing. All right, very quickly, um, I think some of the issues of the public losing confidence in the court uh, could it have something to do with the fact that we saw the last three appointees uh, testify under oath that, uh, you know, I don't like Roe v. Wade, but it is settled law and we have no intention of upsetting what's been settled law for so long and a women a right that women have had for so many years and upsetting that. But then as soon as they get on the court and they get the, the 6-3 majority, that's one of the first things they went after. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because it's it's not only the specter of that seeming to be dishonest, but it is also given the fact that the Supreme Court has never taken away a right. This is the first time. And in the backdrop of this particular right being taken away, the U.S. is the deadliest place in the developed world for a person to be pregnant. The Supreme Court in prior decisions had already acknowledged that a woman is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. So when the Supreme Court takes away this right to be able to choose your own reproductive future, knowing that pregnancy in the United States can be deadly, that yes, people are losing confidence. Just in the last 100 days since Dobbs, we've seen a 10-year-old girl flee a state to have an abortion because she was raped. We've seen one state, Louisiana, forcing a woman to carry a fetus that has no skull to term. And, you know, it's just been a horrific set of circumstances all across the country. But all of this, the Supreme Court's majority knew before overturning Roe v. Wade that it would, in fact, be this nightmare scenario for women all across the country. And I think that's why we saw the votes in Kansas, not only amongst Democrat women, but Republican women who don't want the specter of their 10-year-old girl being raped and then having to carry a pregnancy to term and be a mother at 10 years old. All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Michelle Govan, Chancellor's Professor of Law at UC Irvine and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. You're listening to KDX In-Depth with Brian Ping in for Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer in for Charles Feldman. The movie Bros has made history as the first gay romantic comedy from a major studio. Universal Pictures put the movie out across the U.S. and spent millions and millions of dollars advertising and promoting it. Now, the vast majority of reviews from critics were positive, but the the movie basically bombed on its opening weekend and taking in less than $5 million. That's about 40% less than what was expected. Now, one of the stars has been quite Vocal after the numbers came out. Brooks Barnes is uh, the media and entertainment reporter for the New York Times. So what is uh, what is the actor's take on, on why the movie didn't do so well? Hi there. So uh, Billy Eichner, who stars in the movie and co-wrote it, uh, wrote on social media that unfortunately he basically blames it on not enough uh, straight people coming to buy a ticket and he said something like you know it is what it is um the problem with that of course is that that, you know a lot of people didn't buy tickets uh the the number is so low that uh you know you have to look at sort of some other reasons i'm I'm happy to sort of unpack those if you want to 
Yeah, I think one thing being what you mentioned, the fact that he went and, and called out straight people. Billy Eichner is a rather polarizing figure for people who aren't familiar with him. I mean, he rose to fame with the, you know, going up and <laughs> I wouldn't want to say costing people on the <laughs> yeah. street, but you know, I, he's got he's got a very, I don't know, aggressive, maybe might not be the best word for it, personality that could turn some people off. So there could be other factors, even though this, uh, the movie got you know good uh, reviews that people might be turned off to it. Yeah, like, you know, it's in this moment, I'm sure, incredibly hard to uh, look at yourself as a reason. <laughs> but there, there is no question that Billy Eichner himself is part of the reason the movie didn't open. They, you know, he's not a movie star. A lot of people, like you said, find him polarizing. His comedy polarizing. He can be caustic. And, you know, just in my little, you know, circle here in, in West Hollywood, I'm a gay man with a lot of you know, friends who know who are familiar with him and half half absolutely adore him, half think he's the equivalent of nails on a chalkboard. So um, that that has to be part of the factor. So, uh, uh, in yeah. other words, uh, are you saying that if maybe there were some different actors at the at the top of this, it, it even with the uh, the gay themes, it would have done better. So that's interesting, right? Because on the other hand, you can fault uh, you know Universal for for casting him or him for writing a movie for himself to star in. But on the other hand, like who would you have instead? There's there's not exactly a, a large number of openly gay um, star, male stars in that in that age range that would that would work. I mean Neil Patrick Harris probably on the upper end of the range, and, and you know that might be it. Uh, so, you know, there's there's a lot to say about um, sort of this as a historic first and, and not a whole lot of others out there, if that makes sense. Is it a good movie? And if so, do you think that word of mouth might resuscitate its fortunes in the coming weeks? The people who went to see it liked it a lot. They gave it an A grade in exit polls, uh, reviews are very strong it's in the 90s positive on rotten tomatoes i think you know to be blunt some of those are graded on a a big rainbow curve but they are you know very positive um it could the problem though with the with the theatrical marketplace is that everything is geared to opening weekend and so we're in a moment where there are fewer movies coming to theaters Movies can stick around a little bit longer and find find a, an audience, but um, not not very long. You know, you've got other movies coming on uh, along the way, including another sort of traditional romantic comedy starring uh, Julia Roberts and George Clooney. All right, thanks so much, Brooks Barnes, the media and entertainment reporter for the New York Times. Do you feel like you're a different person since the pandemic began? You like act completely differently. Do you wear different clothes? Do you say hi to different people? It's maybe because you might have a new personality, sort of. Well, do you not say hi to anybody at all nowadays? Well, a new study led by a Florida State University researcher found that notable personality changes are happening in people across the country since the pandemic started. Extroversion, agreeableness, and conscientiousness all decline, particularly in young adults. With us now is uh, Dr. Julian Legoy, psychiatrist for Community Psychiatry in San Jose. Now, doctor, of course, uh, some of this makes sense. You know, we were 
were all forced to be on lockdown for however long a time. And, uh, you know, many of us retreated into a social media bubble. And you know, as we know now, that doesn't really foster <laughs> healthy uh, personal uh, uh, connect- off, connections. Yeah, right. <laughs> all, the, all the time. So you would say this isn't uh, terribly surprising, would you? No, it's not. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. But yeah, to answer your question, no, this is completely something I would have predicted during the pandemic. And this is something we're seeing happen before our very eyes. And you'll see the effects of the next few years, unfortunately. Now, is it because of the how culture changed a little bit? We all had to stay indoors for a while. I mean, you know, some of that's getting back to normal now. But there was also the idea that something major was happening in the world. And when there are big, big changes in the world, things that affect everyone on the planet, people tend to not react well to those changes sometimes. Is that part of it, too? That is part of it. But I think a big, if you, uh, you know, one thing the study noted is it's more pronounced among young adults and children, um, which I think is, is worth talking about because if you look at the biology of the human brain, the young adults and the children, their brains are still developing. It's, it's not completely formed yet. So when something this traumatic and huge happens, they're more likely to get affected by it and more at risk of mental illness versus an adult. But yes, you're right. It does affect everybody, no matter what age you are. Yeah, it's like when you break a bone when you're young, it becomes uh, more tricky for that thing to heal uh, over the course of your life. And as you said, a brain is still developing at, uh, at younger ages. And for their routine of development to get so shaken up like it did, that's going to have some long-term consequences. Yes, uh, yes, it will. And, and I'm sure most people are listening to this like, well, what, what does this mean for me? I think it means that we need to love our children even more now than we did before the pandemic because they've gone through so much. And th- to have all this trauma, to not be with their friends, they're lacking a lot of development that normal children in normal times had. So they're, they're more at risk of mental illness. They're more at risk of loneliness. And as a parent or anybody that knows a child or a young adult, we need to be more human and loving to them. That's what we need to take out of this study. Now, when we were talking about this, we talked to uh, our uh, news anchor, Karen Adams, who, who said that she's more patient with people and, and more forgiving. And, and I kind of joked that I was, too. So it was obviously a big change. But what you're looking at here is a lot of our personality traits got worse over this. Is there any indication of anybody's actually getting better? Uh, that's a hard question to answer because, you know, we don't really know yet because we're, we're currently in a pandemic. I mean, we're getting out of it now, so things are getting better, but based on what I've done in my work, I I see hundreds of patients and from what I see, things I think are getting, I mean, they're getting better, but the effects are, things got a lot worse before they're getting better. I'll tell you that. And I'm seeing a lot of new patients who've never seen a psychiatrist or a mental health and they're going through, they're suffering a lot right now. So it's definitely gotten worse before it get, will get better, hopefully. Now, how much of this is just straight up exhaustion? Because this has just been a lot for us to have been through these last few years, especially mentally and emotionally. So much change, you know, having to you know, pay attention to what's going on so often. It just wears on you. And that's got to contribute to how, how we've changed. You're completely right. It's exhaustion. It's it's changing up our social life. It's people. A lot of people lost their jobs. They can't pay the rent. There's the finances, the gas. I mean, I could keep going on for hours about everything that's happened these last few years. And 
um, it's, 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 it's not, a, it's not an easy answer. It's a very complicated situation, but all the effects, it's almost like a perfect storm, you know, everything happened and it's had these huge negative effects, especially on the children and young adults. Now, what about medical issues? Uh, people who actually had COVID and, you know, they're, they're seeing some, there are some changes to some, some of victims' brains. Uh, any indications of that being a personality change just medically? Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there are some preliminary studies on COVID and, and the long-term consequences on your neurological system and your lungs, but it's really too early to tell, and we do need more studies still to kind of to look into that. Um, you know, there's some preliminary data, but it's not enough yet to really make a, a con- major conclusion. There, there are some data about how it affects your lungs long-term and your, your nervous system. But it's still pretty early and we need the next few years to really see. And, and that's including the, the mental illness that it's affected. We need to really look at more studies and look at the next few years to see what the actual effect is. How long do you anticipate we could be on this downward slope or are we perhaps maybe getting a little better now that there's a little bit more distance uh, between right. us and when things really were bad? Are there signs that the arrow might finally be pointing up, if not now, then soon? I think we are getting better. I mean, we're almost back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, I mean, I go out without a mask most times now, and I'm in social places without a mask. So, I mean, there's still that threat of the pandemic, but I I do think we've made it out of the woods where things are going to keep getting better. And and yes, the effects will still linger, but I think with time, things will get better. And I see a lot of people, I know this isn't kind of relevant, but I see a lot of people who've been traumatized in life. They've been raped or they've been abused. And just because you have trauma doesn't mean your life is over. You know, you can still change your life and people come out. Some people end up worse and some people move on and and still make a good life. So it's not the end of the world for everybody. I mean, we can still make the, the positive change. And, you know, there are people who have uh, some pre-existing conditions, uh, mental conditions. uh, They deal with anxiety. Uh, I will admit openly uh, that I have dealt with anxiety issues in my lifetime. And there were some of these situations just really exacerbated that and made it worse. Uh, Did you see a lot of that uh, during the pandemic? And and are they going to get better as the pandemic improves or is that going to make a permanent change in their lives? And thank you for that question. And and thank you for being open. And I'll tell you, I've also been in that bucket. I I had more anxiety during the pandemic and I started medication myself and it's really been helpful. And so, so to answer your question, yes, I, anxiety has increased significantly in the pandemic, but more people have also been open to getting treatment. And I think because our country is a lot more open to mental illness now than it was pre-pandemic. So it's been a good, I mean, it's been bad that more people are affected, but it's been good because more people are more open and happy to get treated. So that's been one of the good things the pandemic has done is increase access to healthcare and make mental illness less of a stigma and a negative thing. All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Dr. Julian Lagoy, psychiatrist for Community Psychiatry in San Jose. This has been K-Nice In-Depth. We're going to do it again tomorrow. It might not be us, but uh, we are going to have an in-depth tomorrow.